Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. I'm Erica Cruz-Guevara and welcome to The Bay. Local news to keep you rooted. Earlier this year, Governor Gavin Newsom announced plans to dismantle death row in California. But many of the folks currently there have been languishing for years, even decades. In those impossible circumstances, a man named Timothy James Young has been working for redemption. He believes he was wrongfully convicted and has been advocating from the inside to get out. And it all started with a garden. I always wanted the garden to be able to tell a story. Not just my story, but um, stories of the past and stories of hope, stories of inspiration. Today, the story of how one man designed a garden from death row and how it snowballed into a full-blown campaign by students at UC Santa Cruz to exonerate him. Can you just start by describing this garden that you went to in Santa Cruz? It was a beautiful day, first of all, as it is on many days on the UC Santa Cruz campus. Chloe Veltman is an arts and culture reporter for KQED. Working with Tim and starting that project... I went up to look at the garden with Rachel Nelson, who is the director of the Institute of Arts and Sciences at UC Santa Cruz. One of the reasons why I came to this campus actually was the history of work on prisons and abolition that was on this campus. And, I and we walked up a not very steep hill and we found ourselves under these beautiful old growth oaks and redwoods. And there's eucalyptus trees on campus too, which make it smell. With a colossal view of the Monterey Bay cascading down. And right before my eyes was this tiny but very beautiful little green oasis. The solitary garden, as it's called, and it is six feet wide by nine feet long. And the reason for this is that it represents the dimensions of a typical solitary confinement cell. It's planted with gorgeous, bushy plants, rosemary and daisies and agave and a few other things. The thing you're taken with very much as you stand there is how peaceful it is and you can really just be in nature right there. Um, There are also some panels that tell you about the person who curated this garden. And I always wanted the garden to be able to tell a story, not just my story, but um, stories of the past and um, and stories of hope, and stories of inspiration. 
The curator of the Solitary Garden, known as the Solitary Gardener, is a man by the name of Timothy James Young. He has been behind bars for 23 years. He's 52 years old at this point, and he's on death row at San Quentin. Tell me, Chloe, a little bit about the conditions he lives in on death row. They're fairly grim. This is a four and a half by 10 foot cell. He has a tiny cell. It's one of the more old-fashioned solitary confinement cells, as I've come to understand it. And because it's old-fashioned, it doesn't have a desk in it. And people have no idea that I don't even have a place to sit. Which is a huge problem for Tim, because he is a creative person. He's a writer. He's a poet. So he does all of his work on his tiny bed. He told me that he prefers to think of his bed as a place to work rather than a place to sleep. I have all my stationery there, my pens, paper, stamps, postage. My life and everything that's important to me pretty much exists right here on top of this bunk. And um, he spends his day on the phone quite a bit, um, talking to the many friends that he's made on the UC Santa Cruz campus. I do a lot of casework, I do a lot of writing, I do a lot of outreach. So no matter what I'm going through physically or mentally or emotionally, I have to get up and do the work. He uh, also writes a lot of very beautiful, very strong poems. A better world is possible. Prison abolition is logical. Society holds the key. Time to manifest destiny. Organize, mobilize, act in solidarity. When and how does Tim start communicating with the outside world? Yeah, so the relationship with UC Santa Cruz begins with an artist called Jackie Samel, who creates a lot of public art projects around mass incarceration and criticising and and protesting um, solitary confinement. Tim Young had seen some of her work, had gotten very interested in in her and had written to her. He didn't hear back for a long time, he told me. But when UC Santa Cruz was developing its own solitary garden and looking for someone who was behind bars to be the solitary gardener for the project, Jackie Samel remembered Tim Young and suggested him to... Rachel Nelson. And so that's how the relationship originated. I'm curious why he was so interested in it. Like, why why work on this garden? What about it was appealing to him? He already had such an interest in Jackie Samel and her work, but also he's an incredibly creative individual. And this was a way to kind of develop a creative project and to be able to connect with people outside of the confines of his tiny prison cell. He just kind of leapt at the opportunity. I took a lot of time to write out, you know, not only what I would like to have planted in the garden, but what it meant. Like, I wanted everything in the garden to have some type of meaning. His gardening, I will say, is very, very intentional. For example, he wanted a lot of vegetables planted like kale because he doesn't get that in prison. He told me the food is so awful. So he asked for the garden to have healthy vegetables in it. Another thing he really wanted in this very sort of intentional way of thinking about the gardening was that he wanted sugarcane. Because it harkens back to slavery. And I wanted people to have a visual reference. So when they walked away from the garden installation, they would know that prisons are the new plantations and that prison labor has replaced slave labor. 
but it is also a symbol of privacy. The sugarcane was the only place, he says, that the slaves could go if they wanted any kind of privacy. They would use the sugarcane fields as a wall of privacy. Privacy, or the lack thereof, is also something that prisoners have to contend with. They're listening in on his phone calls. They're watching him go to the bathroom. We are under constant surveillance, even in our most private, intimate moments. Tim told me that being selected three years ago as the solitary gardener, the curator of the solitary garden, um, which is part of a nationwide public art project protesting solitary confinement, has become a lifeline for him. That's when I began to see Tano um, at, at the end of the life, and, and my hope began to grow because I had finally connected with people who, you know, they were able to see me and they believed in me. And they cared. Because it's led to these deep friendships with faculty and, and, and uh, students on the UC Santa Cruz campus, which in turn has led to these really powerful digital media projects that raise awareness around his case. Through Timothy's work on the garden, he developed relationships at UC Santa Cruz. He talked with professors every day about the garden, and in turn, they started to learn more about his case. Eventually, Timothy's story caught the attention of a group of UC Santa Cruz film students who were part of a class with Georgetown University called Making an Exoneree. It's a class that's been going on since 2018, and each year the students at Georgetown work on trying to get exonerations for a handful of prisoners each year who very likely have been wrongfully convicted of the crimes they're accused of committing. And in the sort of four or five, five years or so that this class has been going on, out of the 25 prisoners whose cases the students have taken on at Georgetown, three have actually received exonerations. And very much the work that the students did was very much part of that process. And this is how uh, students at UC Santa Cruz got involved with Timothy Young's case. I believe that he was set up. I believe that he is innocent. I believe in what he has told me. I believe in what I have read. I believe in what other people have told me. Alison Dean is 22 years old, uh, fourth year film and digital media undergraduate at UC Santa Cruz. The team that, that was allocated to Timothy James Young involved two students from UC Santa Cruz. Sullivan Goodrow is the other one. But Alison Dean um, basically uh, just decided she was interested, if she could, take on, his, take on Timothy Young's case because it was in California and also because it's a death row case. And then she and Sullivan and the rest of the team members from Georgetown plunged right in to the story of what had happened to Timothy. I think the more that she dug into this case, the more she just became despairing of the way in which these kinds of cases are handled in the state of California. Sometimes you reach dead ends and that's really disappointing because I'm thinking about the fact that it's a man's life. It's a man's life that I'm dealing with and that's really heavy. Um, and I'm just a 22-year-old 
Coming up, why Timothy James Young is behind bars and why he and these students believe he should be free. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Can you actually walk us um, briefly, Chloe, through his case and, and what he's accused of? So Tim is accused of murdering five people in a bar in Tulare, which is a town in the San Joaquin Valley. And this crime took place in 1995. Three gunmen walked into the bar and basically shot the person who was working behind the bar and the patrons who were there. It's a crime that, to this day, Alison says, still shocks people in Kings County. And a lot of people do want Tim dead, those that believe that he's guilty of this. Tim says he didn't know anything about this until 1999, when he was leaving an Easter celebration and um, was basically pulled over by law enforcement. And from there, it was just uh, chaos. It was, you know, uh, I had a bunch of different officers uh, screaming and yelling at me, threatening me, like, hey, you know, put your hands up, do this, do that. And, you know, you make one wrong move, I'm blow your head off. And this and that. And uh, I'm just trying to figure out what the heck's going on. And I look around, and there's like assault rifles being pointed at me from every direction. And they packed him off to county jail. And it took quite a while for him to even know what was going on. I sat there um, just shocked, dazed, confused, disillusioned by what the heck's going on. When he did find out what he was accused of, he thought the criminal justice system would work in his favour and he'd be free pretty soon. But that didn't happen. I was wrong because it just turned into a 23-year nightmare. And despite very shaky evidence and the fact that he was able eventually to produce medical records and employment records that show that he was in a bunch of different meetings and appointments at the time of this crime and therefore couldn't possibly have committed it. Despite all of this and various other factors, his um, case still went to trial. And then in December 2005, um, an all-white jury convicted Tim, who's black, of murder. And a month later, he was sentenced to death. He's been in San Quentin since 2006. 
So let's come back to the students' role in all this. Allison Dean and others at UC Santa Cruz and Georgetown are poring over all these legal documents, and they're trying to build a case that Timothy James Young should not be behind bars. How else do they do this? They also went to where the crime had taken place that Timothy James Young was accused of committing. They interviewed as many people as they could possibly find who were involved with the initial investigation and the trial. And they also tracked down some of Tim's uh, friends and family members um, to talk to them about him. And they uh, produced a documentary film, eight minute long documentary film from their investigation, as well as a social media campaign fundraising campaign and a website, all devoted to making a very strong case for Timothy James Young's innocence. If you watch the documentary, you'll see that the judge and and other people who were involved in the investigation that puts him behind bars admit that the evidence room was a mess and that things were mishandled. There are just so many things that went wrong with this case, basically. And and the students have done a very sort of thorough job of of digging these things up. I mean, also, you have to remember that they're working with uh, very top legal experts at Georgetown University, people like Mark Howard and Martin Tankleff, who himself, Martin, was accused of killing his parents and spent many years on death row before he himself was exonerated. But, you know, these people are are very sort of careful in terms of how they're working with the students and evaluating what they're coming up with. What is the progress of their work at this point? What, What do they ultimately want to do in order to help Timothy? The class is done, but Alison and her fellow students have decided they are going to keep fighting on Tim's behalf for as long as it takes, right? And it could be a really long time because these things move at a glacial pace. But what's exciting for them right now is that their materials have been put in front of uh, what they're saying is a, a major law firm on the East Coast. And this is really important because they their immediate goal is to try to get Tim a pro bono lawyer to defend him in his appeal process. They're hoping that this law firm will take on the case. So this is where we are right now in a sort of a holding pattern, waiting to see if that happens. And if they can get legal representation from an independent lawyer, somebody who's not you know part of the system, appointed by the state, they think things will move along a lot quicker. But it's really hard <laughs> for for the students. I mean, Alison feels quite a bit of frustration. And probably the hardest thing is when he calls and he asks for updates and I have no updates for him um, because this is his entire life. And I think sometimes that gets lost when we're thinking about the case. Which I think speaks to this kind of larger issue of students being involved in these kinds of cases. And I I found out um, from talking to Robert Dunham, who runs the Death Penalty Information Centre, which is this um, independent national nonprofit that, you know, does data and analysis around death penalty cases, um, that in fact, there's quite a tradition of students in this country um, working, advocating on behalf of people who've been wrongfully convicted and, and people on death row. It's not a good thing for the law that um, that justice has to be rescued um, by the heroic efforts of students. Um, but it is the best in the American academic tradition. It's kind of crazy that it took art 
and this garden and this group of students for Timothy to get this kind of help that he says that he needs in order to get his conviction overturned. Is that really what it takes or is his story an outlier? I don't think it's an outlier. I mean, I started my research for this story thinking it was, but as I found out from speaking with Robert Dunham and then looking around online at various articles and this and that, yeah, it seems like at least going back to the 1990s, if not before, you've got these students at various schools. For example, there's there's an important journalism uh, effort at, at Northwestern University, which has been working on these sorts of cases with some degree of success over the years. And the fact of the matter is, as, as, as Robert Dunham told me, the prison system is so broken that you have to have these outside forces people like students to actually advocate there aren't enough lawyers and enough resources and enough courts um, with open hearts and open courtroom doors uh, to correct all of the injustices uh, that we see so there will always be need for people on the outside to bring attention to things that are not being corrected But on the other hand, I mean, it's kind of messed up, isn't it? (laughs) The fact that that it's come to this. But I do think also the the fact that we do see sort of students involved in this way does speak to this kind of larger feeling of agency that we should all feel, right? I mean, it doesn't just have to be students who do this work. I think it can be anyone. I mean, that's the point. Is Tim hopeful he'll be exonerated? Yeah. I'm innocent. I'll prove my innocence and I will be exonerated. Since he started making all these friends on the UC Santa Cruz campus, he's feeling more hopeful, he says, than he ever has. I feel that I'm the luckiest wrongfully convicted prisoner on earth because I feel that I I feel that I was awarded the best possible selection of students possible. He's really excited about the day when he can get out of San Quentin and go over to the UC Santa Cruz campus and take in that view and also just run his fingers through the soil and maybe even do a spot of gardening with his own hands himself. That the soil just kind of sift through my fingers. I've been deprived of nature for so long and I really just like to, uh, you know, I like to just hug a tree. I like to, you know, feel the earth and kiss the ground even. Chloe, thank you so much. ECG, it's been such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Chloe Veltman, an arts and culture reporter for KQED. If you're interested in learning more about Governor Gavin Newsom's plan to dismantle death row in the next two years, we actually did an episode about it shortly after his announcement. We talk about what the plan might look like for those on the inside and why it might be easier said than done. Check out our show notes for the link to that episode. This 36-minute conversation with Chloe was chopped down by Alan Montecilio. Producer Maria Esquinka scored this one and added all the tape. Kiana Mogadam is our senior producer of podcasts. Gerald Furman is our podcast engagement intern. Jen Chien is our director of podcasts. And Holly Kernan is our chief content officer. 
And that's it for the Bay this week, y'all. We're taking a break on Monday for Juneteenth, but we'll catch you all right back here on Wednesday. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara. Stay safe, stay healthy, and from all of us here at the Bay, peace. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.